I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. On brand new mics. If you guys notice that we sound better than ever, it's because we did spring. And so I hope you guys notice because I feel like a mom who's like, well, why do I even send you to private school if you don't appreciate it? These mics went to private school, you guys. They are so fancy. They smell like labor went into them. Are you trying to say our mics have B.O.? What does that mean? <laughs> yes, our mics literally do have B.O. They don't. They have new car smell. I hate new car smell. Once we spray our own spit all over them, the smell will go away. Should we write our names on them? Because I am spitting. But I do like drink out of your drinks all the time. That's true. What's a little spit among friends? <laughs> anyway, what are these two friends about to get into? When they're not swapping spit. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> they're reading celebrity memoirs and bringing you the juiciest details with a side of their own thoughts, their own analyses. That's why we come here, folks to project upon people we don't know. And if that's not your cup of tea, then I would suggest that you go spit in a different cup of tea. There is some more straightforward information on the internet, but if you want it with flair, baby, there's no better place. Yeah, this is the flair lair with Ashley and Claire. <laughs> but here's the thing, you guys. We love you so much, and we love it when you love us back. And we hear you, and we appreciate you, and we appreciate it when you appreciate it us. So we have gotten the feedback that people are tired of hearing names up top. We do still want to say thank you and also get to our goal of 1,000 reviews. So the deal is when we get to 1,000 reviews, we will stop reading the names out. If you ever wanted to hear your name on this podcast, now's your time to get in because tickets are going fast. <laughs> We're so close to being free from this. I enjoy it. I love it. But I guess some of you guys don't. Thank you so much to everybody who has reviewed already. We really appreciate you. Yes. Now a massive shout out to our darling five-star reviewers. Another Parker. Oh my God. We're so happy to have more Parkers. Lizard Malfoy. That's also somehow Claire. Grace Skyler. Oh, sky's the limit. Thanks for being here here angel 910376 thank you for being a fucking angel ammer iec i see this review and i say thank you lordna of the rings oh you're the lord of my heart allison patton patting you on the back saying thanks for this review Creastein, do you know Sean? because you guys both seem like geniuses nikki's mama oh tell nikki i say hi thanks for being a great mama andrea 4270 i see what you did there with splitting up the four. 20 with a 7. Allie M. Rojas. Thank you. My love for you is red. Remy Baby 17. Thank you, baby. 18 times. Tora Bora for 2069. Hell yeah. Do the horror. Cass 1026. Thank you a lot. Cindy Lou who 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 0. You're not a Grinch to me. Aves 0716. Thank you so much. Ray Dons. Thank Thank you for donning this review upon us. Ambelina, thank you. You are a beautiful ballerina. Madstein13, I am absolutely mad for you and this review. GRB4690, thank you for gerbing this review. Bobby Toby, I don't really know, but thank you a lot. Laurel J1, you are number one to me. Loves it. No, I love you. Ashley Tisdale, yeast infection. Boy, oh boy. I hope she got that cleared up. Reality TV Laura, thank you so much for bringing some reality to these reviews with um, just saying nice things. Leah Christine, thank you so much. D okay, this one I'm not even gonna, this is just letters, but I really appreciate you. <laughs> live M, I live for these reviews. TK Norman, nothing normal about being 
being a worm, and that's why we like it. Cindy Watson, thank you for being our Sherlock Holmes. Can I use this nickname, please? Of course you can. T-Rod9, thanks for bringing your rod over here. E-Moxie Moose, thanks for your moxie. Lori Neary, thanks for staying neary and deary to my heart. And that's it for this week. That's not true. We have two extra special ones from Sweden. Thank you so much to Tio Linny. You are my favorite Linny. And thank you to little sister at, at, at awesome, because my God, you are the most awesome little sister out there. Thank you guys so much. It doesn't just mean a lot to us, but it does actually really help us try to expand and grow the podcast. Claire, if you were writing a memoir and you were to write about this week, what would you call it? Growing up and growing in. Okay, so next week is my birthday. Yes. And I'm spending the whole day celebrating other people. Wow. I'm waking up early. I'm doing somebody else's podcast. And then my mom has an opening in New Jersey. So me and Mac are going to drive like an hour into New Jersey to go to that. And then we turn around and we have a wedding in Long Island. So then we have to drive two hours to the wedding. Oh my God. And the thing about my birthday this year is it's on a Saturday. And the great thing about Saturday birthdays is it's so easy to celebrate. But the bad thing is it's like when Halloween's on a Saturday, there's no week before, week after. You can't be like, well, well, my birthday's on a Wednesday. So family weekend before friends weekend like it's Saturday or it's bus yeah and I'm just like very graciously if I say so myself handling it I don't even care I honestly don't even care um so like I I literally don't care (laughs) no I don't care (laughs) I don't care I I believe that you don't care I will say since your birthday is fully booked for other people's things and I've told you if you want to do a dinner on a different day just say that day and we'll do it so the problem that I think happens every year is I am growing up and being like, my birthday doesn't have to be a six-week event. It could just be one night with my buddies. But then everything always gets chopped up. So I thought we'd do dinner and then go out after on Friday. But Mac is taking me out to dinner on Friday. So I'm like, okay, but if I want to do a dinner with my friends, I still want to go out on Friday. So it's like, what, I'm going to go out on Friday and then do a different dinner with my friends and then do a dinner with my family. It just adds up. And I almost feel like being like, I'll have one little thing. I'll have another birthday next year. Plus you'll have Christmas. Yeah. And we always have dinner <laughs> with a group of friends. Christmas is around the corner and that's the time to really celebrate Claire. <laughs> Everybody knows Christmas is kind of my day. But anyway, I feel like that's very cool of me to be like I don't care. We'll see how much you don't care. I think only time will tell. I can't wait to check back in with you guys next week to let you know how little I cared. My parents give me a lot of shit for being somebody who's like obsessed with their birthday and I feel frustrated because now I feel like that's something I can't escape. Like I lost a lot of things growing up and they're always like, oh, don't lose your coat. I haven't lost a coat in 12 years. Please acknowledge I'm not 14 anymore. Yeah, but you are obsessed with your birthday. <laughs> I, ever since I've known you, anytime you need a favor, you are incapable of asking for favors without linking it to your birthday. You're always like, for my birthday, do you think we could go get a coffee sometime? And it's just like, yeah, we could also just go get a coffee sometime. Or like when you needed a new backpack, you spent like seven months just carrying everything in your hands. Cause you're like, I asked for a new backpack for my birthday. And you were an adult with a salary who could have conceivably spent $40 on a backpack. You know what it is? For some reason, I'm not somebody who shops. Like I never window shop. If I'm shopping for something, it's because something is broken and it needs to be replaced. Yeah, your backpack did break (laughs) and needed to be replaced. I don't know. For some reason in my head, like the only day of the year you can have anything given to you is on your birthday. And so I have to all year plan very specifically for it. And you always ask me for just like practical things. I want to get you something cool. Like you're always like, I guess I do really need a new eyebrow pencil and shampoo. (laughs) And I'll be on April. I'll be like, I can't wait till my birthday when I can wash my hair again. That is if somebody comes through. 
I do get that I bring up my birthday year round, but it's not like... It's not like I'm obsessed with it or something. I'm actually that humble. Listen, one day a year, I'll ask you a favor and that's it. A <laughs> hundred days a year, I'll ask for a favor, but it's only on one day of the year that you have to remember them. Anyway, Ashley. Yes. If your book was a life and your memoir was a chapter, what would that be called? I am just going to ignore the fact that what you said made no sense and keep talking about myself. I would call this week's chapter... There's a lesson in there somewhere. So here's what happened. Here's the story. I got a new pair of really chunky Doc Martens and I feel very cool in them. Okay. When I wear them, I feel like I'm Priyanka Chopra, five foot 10. I feel powerful. I feel cool. I had a show that I wasn't honestly that stoked to go to because they sent us a message being like, if you still want to come, you can, but there's going to be no one here. And it was kind of out of the way and it was kind of a mess. And I was walking to the show and I stepped in a literal pile of shit. No, Ashley. Yes. You never even told me that this happened. It's hard for me to say out loud. And I felt like I could get it out one to two times. And I wanted to save it for the podcast. In these new shoes that make me feel so powerful, it is impossible to get any motherfucking thing out. So I got to this show. I scraped off as much as I could in the road. I live in New York City, so there is not grass for 100 miles was like limping through the street being like, what the fuck am I going to do about this? This is a nightmare. And I was trying to get as much as I could out. But there's so many little divots in the bottom of the motherfucking shoe that you can't just wipe out on a sidewalk. You need to be shuffling through grass and there is no grass. So I got there. I beelined for the bathroom. I spent like 15 minutes in the bathroom cleaning my shoe and almost being sick. And then I did get it fully all out, but it took fucking forever. And people kept knocking at the door and then I would come out and be like, I'm so sorry. This is a mess. And you, you go and then I'll go back in. <laughs> There was only one bathroom there and I was really monopolizing it. It was like the tiniest sink. The shoe didn't even fit in the sink. It was so disgusting. I feel like I just need to keep remembering that there's ups and downs and lessons to be learned. I was really feeling like hot shit. And then I stepped in actual shit and I was like, stay humble, you dumb bitch. (laughs) I don't know what the lesson fully was. I feel like I still need to reflect on it. But it was a very impactful moment where I was like, this is one of the worst thing that's ever happened. Like I almost left my shoe. I felt myself step in something and I was like, I don't know if it was mud or who or what? What if I just unlaced my shoe and walked away without even looking? Well, I'm really sorry. I'm glad you got it out. It was a horrible experience and I am hoping I've grown as a person, but I honestly can't guarantee it. (laughs) And now let's get on to our memoirist this week. Claire, what did you know about Isabella St. James before you opened her book, Bunny Tales? Nothing. What did you know about Isabella St. James before you opened her book, Bunny Tales? Nothing. And the first time I ever heard of Isabella St. James is after we did Holly Madison's memoir, Down the Rabbit Hole, and people said, you should read Isabella St. James's book, Bunny Tales. And I said, who? Let's get into Isabella St. James. So Isabella St. James, I don't think St. James could possibly be her real last name, but she never gives you what else it could be. I was going to say the same thing, but I think it's very smart that she is not using her real last name. It does set up what this memoir is, which is like not really about her. It's funny to be like, here's the story of my life. My name, unimportant. Yeah, it is not important. It's very funny the way this book is written because truly 85, 90% of it is about the mansion. And you know going in that she's a girlfriend of Hugh Hefner and she's going to give you that DL. But it's like record scratch. I bet you're wondering how I got here. And it all started with a little thing you may have heard of called World War II, baby. So she opens this book with a little intro talking about how in post-mansion life she is often judged pretty off the bat for the fact that she was formerly a girlfriend of Hugh Hefner. 
And she goes, did I really ruin my life? You be the judge. And then she starts to set up her life, which does start in communist Poland. So she gives that background. She gives a fun little story about how Poland had it come in from both sides. She said Poland never really stood a chance in World War II. Because it has no natural defense mechanisms. She really gives you a pretty detailed history of Poland. And all of its most important people. Can I tell you something that she does that's some real towny shit that I found actually very endearing about her? What? Is that she always loves to point out the most prominent person from wherever she's from. And she loves to be like, William Shatner and Pamela Anderson are also Canadian. (laughs) And you're like, okay. And then she's like, I'm from Poland. You ever heard of the Pope? Yeah. He's ours, baby. (laughs) So she's born in Poland. September 25th, 1975. A Libra, just like Claire. I only say that because she brings it up a lot. Yeah. So her father isn't in the communist party, but he has a pretty high up and well-paying job. Nevertheless, when she's 10 years old, they decide to make a break and go to Greece. They spend one year in Greece before their visa gets approved to move to Canada. So they end up in Canada. They move around a little bit through Canada and then finally settle in a town about an hour outside of Toronto. There she finally establishes kind of a life and she's a real brainiac she's a hot girl brainiac she says her friends didn't really know that she was such a nerd when she graduated with honors because she was still like fucking you know yeah she's like a cool girl so she ends up going to mcgill the canada of harvard yeah the Harvard of Canada. No. She goes to McGill and she wants to become a lawyer. And she ends up going to Pepperdine Law School because she wants to go somewhere warmer. She's like, it was too cold in Canada. I have to say, this is where I call a bit of bullshit. I do know that when you're in law school, it's really important to get those internships during the summer. And she acknowledges that as well, that a lot of your career ends up being based on what you'd spent your summers doing. And instead of getting any internship, she often uses that time to travel and take law school classes in other countries. She shocks it up to being able to graduate early by getting credits over the summer. But I don't even think it's helpful if you're going to graduate early to no job. She also has this on and off boyfriend throughout college who has tattoos on his legs. And she's like, it is crazy that he was a lawyer with tattoos. No one had ever seen anything like it. We were the hottest thing in town. People were always trying to steal my boyfriend. Also, I do have this feeling about her that she never really cops to. But I know after she leaves the mansion, she goes on to try to be an actress. It did not work well. I checked the Wikipedia. But I do have this feeling that her whole life, she was always very beautiful and very sought after and sexy. And then when she went to Pepperdine, I have this feeling that she wanted to be in Malibu because it's pretty LA adjacent. And she had this feeling being like, if I'm hot, I belong in LA. And then she got to LA and she was still hotter than everyone else. And then she was like, okay, so I am exceptionally hot. What can I do with this? Yeah, she does mention that she and her friend at college would always fantasize about being soap opera stars. Mm-hmm. And so I do suspect that she went to L.A. to be like, if I was just walking through L.A., would the soap opera see me and cast me? I feel like her whole life, people were like, you're too hot to just be at McGill. You're too hot to just be in law school. And finally, she was like, OK, I believe you. I'm too hot to be here. What else can I do with this? So she goes to L.A. and she was a club girl. She was going to clubs all the time. And there she got spotted by Hugh Hefner. I also want to point out here, she mentions later, once she was a girlfriend, she mentions being very bored by clubbing because she was like, we were always going to these clubs where Hef knew hot young girls come to meet older men that was like the whole vibe of the crowd. And it was the kind of girls who are gonna want to fuck Hugh Hefner. And I'm like, okay, so you were at that club though. 
you went to a club where you were going to meet rich older men. She says at these clubs, she was meeting people like Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon. It wasn't like the mark in New York. It's somewhere you could go if you were trying to get a sugar daddy. I don't think it was sugar daddy exclusive, but I do think it was like C and B seen spots. I don't think it was sugar daddy exclusive, but I, I will say, I think with every single Playboy memoir we've read so far, every single person has tried to be like, and it just was a happenstance. And it never is. You give off a vibe. You seem open to it. It takes two people to make eye contact, especially if it's extended, prolonged eye contact. Yeah, for sure. I will say with my poor vision and the glasses I never wear, I do think I make eye contact sometimes by accident. I don't have that problem, but I do know people think I'm grimacing at them often, (laughs) looking them dead in the face and scowling. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. So she sees Hugh Hafner out. She actually initially exchanges numbers with his doctor, Dr. Feelgood, they call him. He's the king of LA's Viagra scene. Her and her friend the next day are invited to the Fun in the Sun party, which we know from Holly and Kendra's book. It's like the Sunday hangout where, honestly, the girlfriends go and recruit new girls. It's kind of like a testing ground for potential new girlfriends. It's like a level three event. I feel like the big parties, the invitation, if you're hot, you can probably go. The Fun in the Sun is a little bit more of a whittled down list than the club nights are very specific for new girlfriend and sex recruiting. So she goes to this Fun in the Sun. It's 2001 spring. She doesn't want to go back. Her friend's not invited. There's this awkward situation where she keeps getting invited to the Fun in the Sun parties basically every single week. And her friend is always like, should we call up the mansion and see if we can go back to that party sometime? And she's always like... I could. She's like, but I don't want to go without my friend. She also has a boyfriend at this point. Who hates that she's talking to Hugh Hefner literally at all. So that summer, she goes to Poland to do her little law school abroad thing. She breaks up with her boyfriend. And when she comes back, she sees Hugh Hefner again at a club. And he, again, invites her to fun in the sun. So this time she's like, all right, let's look into this. So it's her last semester of law school because she's going to graduate a semester early because of all of her abroad studying. That fall, she starts going to the Playboy Mansion a little bit more, but her studies are still coming first. So that's September 2001. She's going out with them on weekends. She's down. She's having fun. After one hangout, she goes, a few days later, the tragedy of September 11th, 2001 occurred. Like the rest of the country, I was devastated, stunned, and scared. To my surprise, I received a personal call from Hef asking me if I wanted to go out with them. I told him I couldn't, considering what had just happened, and expressed mild disappointment that he would consider going out at a time like this. He seemed taken aback by my tone and mumbled something about how life must go on. I agree that life must go on, but it was much too soon. Later, I came to realize that rain, snow, blackout, or any natural disaster, Hef would still want to go out. Why? So he could have the after party in his bedroom. Yeah. As we know, which we'll get into in more detail later, the after party in his bedroom is the post-club night sex romps. So at this point, she has no true interest in pursuing it, but I do think she sees it as a fun, easy way to get into cool clubs and bars. And she says at this point, she's having a lot of fun hanging out with the girls. And it's cool to be associated with Hef. He's such an icon. He's such a legend. And she's like, I found him endearing. He's inviting me out. Why not? He does give generous gifts to study for her exams. She was like, I really needed a new computer. And I asked if the mansion had an old one that they didn't need. And instead, Hef paid for a new computer for her. She did see a lot of generosity up top that she thought was indicative of who he was. So she graduates early that December 2001. She's planning on prepping for the bar and taking it that February. She's locking herself in, but she kind of breaks at the end and decides just to keep going and partying with them. And the more she's partying with them, the more she sees that this could be a next step in her life and not just a Saturday night hang. 
And she completely self-sabotages. So it just so happens that the bar falls on Grammys weekend, which is the night before the Grammys, there's the Music Cares Benefit event, which is one of the biggest music industry parties slash benefits slash events of the year, second only to the Grammys, which is the next day. And then there's just after parties and other things that whole week. And it all falls the week of the bar exam, which is a three-day test. So the night before the first day of the test, she goes to Music Cares. She chooses to do this anyway. Then she does the first day of the exams. Then she goes that night to the Grammys and then goes to the second day of the exams. And then the third day of the exam, she just blows it off entirely. And she does say that she's pretty sure she would have passed had she taken the third day of the test. Her scores the first two days were actually good enough. And I have to say I was a little disappointed in her. I just don't think it's good planning to skip the third day, especially after the parties are over. I guess that she was really hungover and didn't want to do it. I do see how it really was self-sabotage. She wanted to make sure that there was no momentum carrying her forward into her career. She yeah. wanted to take a break. I think retrospectively, it would have been nice to get that bar under your belt. I think it would have been a good idea. I guess she just really didn't want to do it. I think that she won't admit that she had actually no interest in becoming a lawyer. It's very easy when you self-sabotage and don't take the third day to say you would have passed if you had just finished because it's like, well, then why didn't you just finish? I'm not saying she's stupid. The bar is famously very hard to pass. A lot of incredibly intelligent people. JFK, I believe, president of this United States, formerly. It took him a couple times to get through it. Well, he only had part of a brain. But I'm just saying a lot of people don't pass it the first time. It's very easy to say that you would have. A lot of people don't pass the first time. And I do want to say, I do think she's incredibly smart. Pepperdine is a hard school to get into. Law school is a hard thing to pass. I think that in general, she is a smart person. And I do want to give her credit because we do read a lot of memoirs from people who say I was going to be an XYZ. And it turns out they had just kind of read a pamphlet about that career. Like Portia de Rossi said she was going to be a lawyer. She did like half a year of undergrad. Priyanka Chopra said that she was going to be an aeronautical engineer. That was literally just like a glimmer in her mind that that could be a career path for her. She never went to aeronautical engineering school. I will give her credit to say that when she says I was going to be a lawyer, she was going to be a lawyer. Yeah, I believe that if she had never met Hugh Hafner, she would have at some point taken the bar and would have passed it. Yes. She fully sabotaged herself by not showing up for the test and does not pass the bar exam and does accept Hugh Hefner's invitation to move in that April. So this was a February failure. She continues partying with them and decides that because the next bar exam isn't even until July, she now has a couple free months where there's just not anything else she could possibly do anyway. And she angles for it. Once she does that, now it's like, okay, my next site is set on moving in. At that point, he had just kicked a bunch of girlfriends out for breaking the rules. I think that he was living with two at the time. Plus, Holly had moved in on 9-11, we remember. If you remember anything about 9-11, it's that... That was the week Holly Madison moved into the Playboy Mansion. And Jessica Simpson realized she was in love. And, and Portia de Rossi weighed 168 pounds. <laughs> And Blink-182 was shooting a music video. And Busy Phillips was on break from Dawson's Creek. And Melissa Joan Hart was on vacation in the Bahamas. <laughs> this is like one of those Christmas songs where it's like 12 turtles dancing. <laughs> and I was still heavy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so when she first meets Holly, she realizes that Holly doesn't really have any other friends. So she thinks I'll go for Holly and be Holly's friend. And that obviously backfires immediately because as we've learned, Holly doesn't do friends good. So she moves in with her friend, Emma, who's a mom, page three girl. Yes. From London. We learned from Jerry Hollowell's book that being a page three girl means that you are in the British tabloids with your boobs out on page three. A job I couldn't have if I wanted it. So she tries to be Holly's friend. That doesn't go over. She becomes friends with this girl, Emma. There's another girl, Candy, who moves in, who kind of plays both sides. They're also friends with this girl, Leah, who 
comes in, gets her free car and leaves within four months. But mostly it settles to seven girls, two camps. So a little bit after Isabella moves in, Bridget also moves in very strategically. We'll get into the details on Bridget later. During the meat of her time in the mansion, I would say it becomes Holly and Bridget who buddy up pretty quickly versus Isabella, Emma and Susan. And then Roxy and Candy are just kind of chilling, hoping nobody notices their scams. Her time at the mansion kind of goes through a honeymoon period where she's like, the first few months of the mansion, we partied like rock stars. We went out to clubs three or four nights a week. We attended events. We hosted parties at the mansion. We drank too much, stayed up till morning, then slept till the afternoon. Then we would get up to go to the beauty salon where an army of people attended to us to prepare us for another night out. One person would be blow drying the hair. Another would be curling the dry pieces. Another was painting our nails while yet another was giving us pedicures. Somewhere in between, we could get our makeup done as well. We were young. We had money, cars, and all the nice things money can buy. We also had time. She paints her time in the mansion into three phases. She said there was curiosity and intimidation, fun and excitement, and then finally boredom and fatigue. Eventually, she wakes up and realizes that she is actually losing her mind. I mean, they're doing the exact same thing. If we've learned anything from these books, it's that there's literally nothing half loves more than a routine. He has the exact same habits every single night of the week. There's a very specified schedule. If they're going out of town, he makes his best effort to be home by that night. They'll charter a jet to get home by midnight so he can sleep in his bed. So eventually she realizes that she's living a fun adjacent life. She gets to see all these amazing things, but not participate in anything. Also, the thing about events like going to a club is a club isn't inherently fun. Dancing with people is fun. The potential of meeting somebody at that club, not knowing what's going to happen, getting drunk, seeing where it leads you. That's what's fun about a club. Well, that's why whenever people ask me about bars and restaurants and things like that, places to go and have fun, it's always like places aren't fun, people are fun. She says no matter where they go, they have to be sectioned off. If you're going to talk to somebody, it has to be done very secretively. He has security everywhere he goes. That's basically just keeping an eye on all the girls. There's a litany of strict rules. You have to be home by 9 p.m. unless you're with Hef. And if you're with Hef, you're not allowed to talk to anybody at the club. You're not allowed to have fun. So she realizes that she needs to get out of there. And so around January of 2004. She starts putting the pieces in place to get out of there so that she can be gone by May. Her and her friend Emma and the third girl, Susan, who had all kind of created a team basically out of necessity because Holly and Bridget hated them. Holly wanted to be number one girlfriend bad as hell. And Bridget was kind of her lieutenant and that she's like, I'll be loyal to you if you always have my back. The less people we have to cut the pie up with, the more for us. Holly was number one girlfriend. She wanted to be only girlfriend so bad. And Bridget was there to be like, I'll be the last hanger on, which she did eventually end up being kind of. Yeah. So Holly wanted them out. She didn't just want them not to be number one. She was like, I don't want there to be other girls here. According to Isabella, she was really pitting Hef against the other girls spreading lies about them, also doing things to make their time more unpleasant. Like they started cutting back on allowances, cutting back on outfit allowances. They would get for these fancy events, $2,000 for the Grammys to go get outfits. Anytime they had to go somewhere fancy, they get a lot of money. She started taking that money away. They get money to buy each other gifts. She cut that back. The Christmas gifts apparently got really bad per Holly. She was doing everything she could to make it less desirable to be there for the other girls so that she could push them out and then get everything for herself. And that's on top of the extra shitty rules that had already been put in place by past girlfriend dalliances. It was under the radar that all the other girlfriends had other boyfriends outside the mansion. But because it became too obvious, there was a very strict no boyfriends rule because other girls were getting their car and dipping. Then he was a lot more stingy about the car thing. Yeah, he started paying the car payment as opposed to buying it outright. The thing with Hef is he was playing like whack-a-mole to try to get these women to be loyal to him. So she decides that she needs to start putting plans in place to leave. She decides in January that by May she has to get out of there. Then shit just kind of hits the fan over her last few months. The tensions between Bridget and Holly versus Emma and Isabella got very intense. 
She pretends that she wasn't really a part of it. She's like, I didn't like being a part of the drama. I didn't want to deal with it. But she was egging it on quite a bit. And then Emma got let go. And she's like, all right, I'm just going to tell Hef I'm out. Because honestly, I think she thought she was about to be fired too or broken up with too. Yeah, she assumed he was coming to dump her next. And he said, let's make this work. And she was like, no, I already have a condo. I'm actually ready to go tomorrow. So then she leaves. She ends up having a huge blowout fight with Bridget on her last Wednesday club night at the mansion and it really sours her exit. She's not really invited back for quite a while and then eventually she starts getting invited to the parties again. She goes to a Midsummer's Night's dream party. She goes to say hi to Hef and she says she doesn't know that Hef recognized who she was. And she's like, it did hurt me. I did live with him for two and a half years and I am like, damn, but I guess you guys all do look alike and he is old and I'm sure he's on the way to cataracts. Yeah, and she also talks throughout the book about never really spending time with him and how hard she went to avoid spending time with him. She said it was nice having conversations with him every Every now and again. She says she didn't spend more than 15 minutes one-on-one with him in the entire two and a half years she lived there. One time she stayed in on a Tuesday night and played Monopoly with him and Bridget and Holly. And the other girls made fun of her for being such a fucking narc that she went and played games with Hef. And it's like, I don't know, you guys were all like living with him and presumably his girlfriends. They really did everything they could to get out of it. Another interesting thing about her before we move on to the rest of the book that's not about her is so she claims that she didn't have that much sex with him. That She waited a very long time. She became one of his girlfriends. She was told by him that you don't have to do anything you're uncomfortable with. And she says it wasn't until she moved in that she went and kind of paid her due. She says she only had sex with him a handful of times and she was always keeping her underwear on. And she thinks she was allowed to get away with it because of law school. And she's like, I think every girl in the group served a purpose. And she does say, she's like, I think he liked having conversations with me and hearing my ideas. And I'm like, that's not it, girl. It's absolutely not it. But then she goes, I think he liked that my value of being a lawyer when he could introduce me to people because there is this idea with Playboy magazine that she brings up that these aren't just any old girls that'll take their clothes off. These are like wholesome, smart, the girls you grew up with, the girls you had a crush on that you might marry. They're nice girls with a naughty side. And I do think what we learned from like did not like to hire strippers. Kendra Wilkinson was told lie about being a stripper, stay your student. He does have that poor Madonna then diagram situation where he's like, I want to make a whore out of the Madonna. That's his sweet spot. It's really important to him that these girls aren't sex workers. It is literally a job where you have to have sex and you get paid for that, essentially. It's just not codified well. I wish these girls had contracts. They would have all been better off with contracts. I do think because there was no contract and because there was this unspoken playboy girls are your girl next door, they're so wholesome, whatever that all of these girls, all of these books we've read have felt so comfortable vilifying objective sex work. And it is very bizarre because what they're doing is not that different. And she does the exact same thing Holly does. Throughout this book, she's complaining about she didn't get the exact car she wanted. She got a Land Rover instead of a Range Rover and she was like crying about it. But then they have no problem turning around and being like, some girls took way too much advantage of Hef's generosity. But meanwhile, she was like, I was mad because I would ask him to pay off my loans and he didn't. And she's like, this is how you would ask for things. You would wait till your birthday. Very clear. Yes. Well, she says you would either wait for your birthday to ask for something more extravagant, like a more extravagant plastic surgery or veneers, or what you would do is you would start really showing up in the bedroom and getting extra saucy. And because you were more active in the bedroom, then he would be more likely to give you better presents. It's just funny that you would participate and be like, but anybody who participated more than I did was greedy. But anybody who participated less was like... Lazy. I do think there is this running thing where there's two types of girls in this situation and it's the Holly Madison and the Isabella James on one side. And then there's the Kendras and the Emmas and the Susans on the other side. 
And Holly and Isabella are lying about what they're here to do. And they refuse to give it up. Well, the way you said it earlier is that there are these girls who are like, can you believe I ended up here? It's so random. I'm just like a regular girl who's very smart and very educated and just doing my own thing. And I'm just having fun here. No motive, no nothing. And anyone who has a motive is gross. But they have a motive. You don't do this without a motive. I do think she kind of was like, all right, let's see what happens here. That's why she ended up so disappointed. And that's why she felt like she got fucked over. Because if she had gone in, and I think you rightly said before we started the podcast, I think what she wanted was her law school student debt paid off. And I think she wanted to become an actress. And so I think if she had gone in and said, okay, I'm going to be here for one to two years. My goal is to get have to pay off my student loans. And my goal is to use this time to become an actress. She could have gone in and gotten all that and left. But instead, she felt screwed over and she's left just looking at these women like Emma and Holly as like whores. And it's like, I don't know. They had a fucking business plan. Yeah, I agree. I think Kendra was actually more of a I'm just going to go in and see what happens because she didn't have any plan in life. Honestly, she came out with the best situation and she didn't come out angry because she never tried to pretend that he was really her boyfriend. Right. Because I think that Isabella and Holly did have this air to them of, I'm just going to go in and see what happens. But really, they did have a very specific hope for the end of it. Isabella's was that she wanted her loans paid off, that she wanted financial stability. And I think she wanted a foray into Hollywood as opposed to law school. Isabella's, one of her biggest complaints in this book is that she was so often in rooms with movie stars and actors and musicians and important people and she was almost never allowed to speak to them. She would always pose it in this way of saying there was all these interesting people in this room and I had so many questions for them and me and this person were both Polish and me and this person were both from Canada. I had so much in common with these famous people that I wanted to speak to and I wasn't allowed to. And it's like, I think you wanted to make those connections, which is okay. I mean, she wanted to date them. She talks about how Nicolas Cage hit on her. They all went to a party so that she could hang out with him. And then before she could go out to dinner with him, he had married somebody else, which is suspicious. That also happened with another musician who she does not name, but she says that they spent this evening, she went to his concert and then they kissed. And then five days later he was married. And I was like, okay, it does seem like you're kind of their bachelor party. Oh my God. No offense. Yes. But the fact that that happened twice in two chapters. Anyway. I also want to bring up Holly Madison and her book spends a lot of time talking about how she was too smart to be there, but everyone else actually was as dumb as you'd think. And it is funny to think that literally at those years there was someone who had gone to law school. So Holly makes it really seem like being in the house makes you dumber because you're having mindless conversation with absolute airheads constantly. Holly's big badge of honor is that half talks business with her sometimes. And she's like, it's because he knew I was smart. And it's like, I think he was just kind of talking at you. You know what that reminds me of? Erica Jane and Tom Girardi. (laughs) So what I want to say is potentially going to sound really rude and I don't mean it to be an awful thing to say but I actually after reading this book appreciate that Holly was like being there makes you dumber it took my brain out of my head I don't think Holly was the brightest bulb from the beginning I think she thinks of herself as a smart person and she's not Isabella I think is a smart person I do think being in the house makes you dumber and I don't think it's being associated with playboy I think it's when you're living a life where everything about your life is to wake up tan eat a snack with your friends get your hair done get your nails done, go out to a club, repeat. There's no way your brain isn't atrophying a little. All of them have these ideas, things they want to accomplish, and none of them can even wrap their brain around how to get to an acting class. They all have cars that have bought them. They all have pretty much freedom all day long to do whatever they want. And none of them until on Girls Next Door, Bridget was going to classes and Holly saw Bridget going to classes and was like, oh, maybe I'll take some classes too because they have all day to do nothing. They're not doing anything. And I think doing literally nothing does make you melt a little. 
I agree. I bet you there was a lot of fear with leaving of like, truly, what are you going to do next? Because they do forget how to do anything. I also do think that when money is being handed to you like that, it is very hard to leave. It's very easy to be like, well, I'll just get one more. Or like my birthday is coming up. On their birthdays, they would get $2,000 instead of $1,000 for the week. And I think it'd be very easy to be like, well, I'll just wait until my birthday to see what else I can get. Or I'll just wait till Christmas to see what else I can get. And you get trapped in that cycle of like waiting for the next big break and then you'll go. But then you're always so close to the next one. So I think that makes it hard to leave. And I do think there is this distinct idea. This comes from all of them where they're like, I wanted to leave the house, but what else could I do? And it's like, I don't know, be a waitress, be a temp. There are other things you can do. I've had shitty jobs. There is this funny thing where they're like, I'm miserable every day, but God forbid I go work at a fucking Sephora just to pay rent and figure out my next moves. So obviously, Isabella is St. James and herself. She's not a celebrity. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. But what I will say she does is she writes an incredible insight into the day-to-day lives. And I think even though there is a real bias here, and I think it is important to note that this book did come out during Girls Next Door. It also came out two years after her experience in the mansion. So she is fresh out and not mentally out of it. But there is a motive here. And I do think she focuses a lot on Holly and surprisingly a lot on Bridget, which we were both taken aback by. And I do think it's worth keeping in mind that she had a bad time with them. And now these girls that she hated the most and beat her out of the house have now gone on to become huge stars. So I'm sure she's bitter. I don't think this is an unbiased opinion, but I do think she gives some interesting insight into the day to day of the house that we hadn't heard before. And an interesting look at Holly and Bridget through a hater, but still a And I want to talk about the way this book is written. It is dry as fuck. I think that the reason it's so popular is because it gives a very step-by-step analysis of every single corner of the Playboy Mansion. This book is a textbook. Chapter one, my childhood. Chapter two, how I ended up at the mansion. Chapter three, the food at the mansion. Chapter four, clubbing. Chapter five, sex. She gives you a verbal tour of the mansion. She also does our favorite thing that anybody can do in a book, which is give a list of parties. I will say the difference is that these are parties that actually happened. Yeah, these are important parties that are like part of the life. But it is funny to be like, no matter where you run, you will never (laughs) escape the list list of of parties. parties. (laughs) So let's start it. Chapter one. So because she's outlining every aspect of the mansion and mansion life in a deeply disjointed way, we actually do get a lot of really interesting insights that I don't think we had before. Some of them are repeats. Like she gives us a detailed tour of the mansion and does not leave out the fact that there was animal pee everywhere. So she says about the mansion, there was something about the mansion that just lured you in. It's not Hef himself. It's not the house. It's this enchanting feeling, this aura. There's a spirit to the place that makes your skin tingle, your mind relax, and it makes you lose your inhibitions. That's where the niceties end. So the rules of the house were, of course, you have to be home at 9 p.m. This was to stop people from having other relationships and doing anything else with their lives for the most part. The problem, though, is sometimes the call comes from inside the house. And I guess a lot of previous girlfriends that hooked up with butlers and kitchen staff. So they also were not allowed to even go make their own food. They were never actually allowed in the kitchen or the butler's pantries. It's one of those things where every single thing becomes a golden handcuff because yeah, it's amazing that at the press of a button, you can have any food you want 24 hours a day. But I do see why it's fairly frustrating that you can never just go make yourself a piece of toast. Or even just go grab a quick grab and go of snack. She says, you know, sometimes they would just fully forget your room service. Sometimes it took a really long time. And after an hour, you'd be like, God damn, I would really love that club sandwich right now. Would have been nice to be able to just go into the kitchen and grab some chips. She got in trouble one time because she didn't like the kind of wine that they were making everybody drink because they had a huge surplus of Shiraz. So she snuck into the basement where there's a giant wine cellar and took a cheap bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. And she got ratted out one, because you're not allowed in the wine cellar, because I guess previous girls had stolen wine. And two, you're not allowed to have any bottles in your room. 
So everything has to be brought to you by a glass. Everything is done to control the women. So she got in huge trouble with half. Also, another rule is you're not allowed to take phone calls directly. This clearly was before the age of rampant cell phone use. Everyone who called you had to call the mansion and get redirected to your line. So they were aware of every conversation you were having. I bet you they were listening to. I bet you they got tapped. Obviously, half is obsessed with scrapbooking. The infamous guest house in the backyard. She says, you will find the game house with the infamous padded floor room, which is actually not something I'd ever heard of. She says the carpet floor has a very thick pad underneath to make it bed-like, which is surrounded by mirrors and TVs. The floor in that room is soft, but is by no means a mattress. Maybe it was at one point back in the swinging 70s, but has been worn in and worn out long ago. How disgusting is that? Repulsive. And there's also two bedrooms back there in the game house that have mirrors on the ceiling that are used for party guests to go fuck around. So with these parties, there were some pretty strict rules about attendance. So they were all allowed a guest list, four or five people that they could invite to the parties. But it was a pretty unspoken rule that you could just put girls on your guest list. There was a couple ways to get men in. One is if you paired them up with a woman. So you were like, my couple friend is on my list or just made it look like they were a couple. And then you could get a guy in because girls would invite dates to parties. Or they would put it on another girl's list so it was less suspicious. Or the other thing is if they were very famous because as we know about Hef, he is blinded by fame. And so if you're seeing someone who's extremely famous, you can invite them to the party because Hef is just happy to have a celebrity there. But if he finds out you're boning him, you're screwed. She says inside the Playboy Mansion is really shabby, which we had heard in Holly's memoir that it's really like outdated. Things get fixed one at a time. And it's probably because as we know, the mansion is not owned by Hef. It's owned by Playboy Enterprises and he does in fact rent out those rooms. It's in nobody's direct interest to make the house beautiful. One of the girls' rooms is eight to ten thousand dollars a month. So to be a girlfriend is quite an affair for him because they are getting one thousand dollars cash each week as an allowance, which is something that I did not know. I knew they were getting a $1,000 allowance each week, but I did not know that he was handing it to them. She says that they had to go to his room at a scheduled time every week and request their allowance and he would hand them an envelope. If he was unhappy with you, he would use that time as his moment to be like, you're not doing enough stuff in the bedroom. You're not participating in the movie nights as much. And also he was very withholding. I feel like the biggest problem with being his girlfriend is it's a full-time job where you're getting part-time benefits because she's like one week I had to go and be with my mom who's getting surgery. And so I'm paying for my flight there. I'm paying for a hotel room while my mom's in the hospital. And he goes, that's fine, but no, you won't get an allowance. Yeah, if you aren't there that week, you don't get paid that week. There's no paid time off. These are the times where she's like, I absolutely hated him in that moment. And I'm like, I do think the girls should have unionized because they needed PTO. They needed vacation. Here's the thing. So obviously it sounds insane that you're being paid to be someone's live-in girlfriend. That is a bizarre situation, but she does highlight that you have so many obligations. There's so many things to do. There's no other way you can earn money and people existing in this world do have expenses. She was like, I had a $1,300 student loan payment every month. She maintained an apartment outside the mansion the whole time, which I found very interesting. I found it stupid. I found it a poor decision. But so she had this apartment outside the mansion. So she was paying rent. She was paying her loans. There were expenses that needed to be paid and she could not hold down a regular job. She worked at Playboy for a little while and she just had erratic hours because she couldn't go there that often. Well, she says what also happened is Playboy originally started out in Beverly Hills, but they saved a million dollars a year by moving them to Glendale. And then the commute was an hour and a half and Hef was like, I don't want you leaving that often. Why are you gone all the time? So then... Can I say really quick, that drive is not an hour and a half. Once or twice, it might have been an hour and a half. If there was an accident, it could have been an hour and a half. It was not a daily hour and a half. Interesting. I would guess 40 minutes. 
So back to the bedrooms. I know we went over this with Holly, but he rented those rooms out for eight to $10,000 a month for the girlfriend's rooms. And the main room was $25,000 a month. Can I say another thing about LA traffic? Because she was like basically picking and choosing her hours, essentially. She would just go when she could. She could have very easily made it off rush hour hours. She also says that they were allowed to decorate their own rooms however they wanted, but there was a very specific way he wanted them to decorate it. This is gross. He said he liked our rooms to look like little girl rooms, white carpet and pink walls. Ugh. And they had to have pink and she was annoyed because they all had dogs and she's like, with all of the butlers and stuff coming in with the rooms, the carpets would get disgusting in a few months, but you weren't allowed to change them only when you moved into a new room and you could still only get white. This is a very personal preference that I know a lot of people in my life disagree with. I hate bedroom eating. I don't bring food into my room, let alone a carpeted room. And she says Hef ate every meal in his bed. I wonder why he didn't eat in front of people. He himself had two to five buffet dinners a week where he'd invite people over. And I get that he wanted his own meal, but I don't know why that couldn't be made special for him. He did not eat in front of others. And I wonder what that's about. I wonder if he had to take out his teeth or something. Oh, maybe. But the fact that he ate three meals a day in bed. Plus he's having sex with a hundred women a week in that bed. I mean, that is a disgusting bed to live in. Plus everybody talks about clutter of his bedroom. Yeah, Because he's such a hoarder. She says they had to get him birthday presents and Christmas presents and Valentine's presents. And the only thing he wanted was either photos of them or stuffed animals that he had tons of stuffed animals in his bedroom and he loved stuffed animals. And we know from Holly's book that there was just stacks of tapes and things lying around. In this book, she writes about how Holly's dogs were distinctly not housebroken. She goes, it became significantly worse when Holly moved in with her first dog and then got another. The dogs were not housebroken and relieved themselves on the carpet. This is when she's living in Hef's room. Many a late night or early morning, we stepped in our dog's pee or worse, poop. When we used to go see Hef on Friday mornings to get our allowances, we always had to wait a few minutes as he walked around to pick up the poops. Holly finally talked to him into having the carpet replaced when we went away on a trip. Unfortunately, the carpet chosen for him by the staff was dark blue with a different colored pattern, which made poop spotting much more difficult. Poor Hef used to strain his eyes looking around in the mornings and our accidental step-ins increased. I saw the reality show that she got two more dogs. That's four dogs. I imagine it's just one poop landmine after another in Hef's room. Ugh. Okay, so that room where he eats three meals a day in bed oh. is, is full of probably dust all over the tapes and the clutter, literal dog shit, and sex junk. Disgusting. And I'm sure he's a little sloppy with his soup. I do think that that should have been a challenge on Fear Factor. Just living in his room? A night in that bed. Disgusting. <laughs> One thing about the house that I find really interesting is that it's so well known that the outside of the house is a spectacle. The gardens are beautiful. There's a zoo. Everything is striking. But it's so weird to me that they just don't care about the interior because I get that we literally just said it's because it's owned by Playboy Enterprises, but they did really take the time to redo the outside. And she mentions a couple things about the inside. There are some really nice old architectural elements, but the actual decor of the house was disgusting. She thinks it's because they're hosting literally thousands of people throughout the year. There's no reason to have nice things. They could get stolen or destroyed. She talks a lot about how Hef's oldest daughter, Christine, runs the company and she's always getting on him about how expensive his girlfriends are, how expensive the parties are. She actually says that you can rent out the Playboy backyard for $10,000 a night and events often do, which she found tacky, but that was just to defray the costs of Hefner's lifestyle. So she breaks down the costs uh, that he spends on girlfriends. The rooms are eight to $10,000. They have a certain stipend at the beauty salon. So they're all getting monthly facials, monthly massages, and then they get their hair done. 
pretty regularly. She says Hef himself will point out when you're ready for a root touch-up. And then he also has a running tab with a plastic surgeon. She estimates that he spends $70,000 on boob jobs a year. They really do adapt to this way of life in a way that I don't think anyone is hyper willing to admit. She talks about when they cut back the clothing budget for the Grammys. They used to get $2,000 and now they were only getting $1,000. And she's like, you really could not dress for these two events for only $1,000. And it's like, you really can. Well, something that she said that I thought was very untrue, when they cut back the stipend, she's like, we can't rewear something. We've already been photographed in it. That would be embarrassing. And I'm like, your own boyfriend barely sees you as people. Trust me when I say that not one person is going to see you in an outfit and remember that you wore it last time. Also, two years of clubbing and you, you can't rewear something from nine months ago. Like, you could. They're very much the pussycat doll backup dancers of girlfriends. And every time she has that realization, it makes her really upset. And you can read it a few times throughout this book of it dawning on her that she is not necessarily an important entity. The girls are just there to help Hef and therefore Playboy get PR. It like is really upsetting to her in this way that confuses me because I'm like, I don't know what you thought this was. Well, let's get into Hef. So she gives a background on Hef and I did not know this. So Hef was a copywriter in Chicago. They asked him to move to New York. He said, give me a $5 raise. They said, no. He quit the magazine Esquire and he went and bought a bunch of already nude photos from somebody and created Playboy magazine. And she said it really was his eye that made the magazine blow up. His first ever centerfold was Marilyn Monroe. And it sold out. Then the rest has been history. I mean, not necessarily. There's been ups and downs. Towards the end of her stay at the mansion, there's this definitive less allowance, less clothing allowance. They're cutting back on things. Girlfriends are leaving. Part of the downsizing was downsize the girlfriends. I think part of the reason he allowed Holly in his ear like that was because There's also this pressure from his own daughter in the business saying you can't afford it. And then, of course, they had the girls next door. That wasn't out of nowhere. That was out of the vacuum. That was the lack of income. She's like, they cut back our allowance and our budgets and these things because Holly told him to. Holly was trying to edge us out. And it's like, no, I think Playboy was in a pretty bad place during this time because we know that they had a real renaissance with girls next door. Holly wasn't in his ear saying you need to lower the budget for your birthday party. Like that was a company decision. Let's talk about Holly. She claims that she and Holly simply didn't get along, but she doesn't really harbor animosity for her. And I will say that her words read quite differently. She says a new girl, Holly Madison, had just moved in. I remember how excited she was to finally be living at the mansion. I first met Holly weeks before she moved in. She was one of those girls who came to the parties and fun in the sun. It looked to me like she was always trying very hard to get Hef to notice her by hanging around his girlfriends. I guess Holly's efforts paid off. Tammy asked Hef to allow her to move in and he agreed. From what I heard about Holly, she had moved to Los Angeles from Oregon and worked at Hooters as a waitress. She couldn't afford a place to live. She was sleeping on someone's couch and begged Tammy to help her. Holly was invited to stay in room three, which had three beds in it and was used by girls when they were visiting. As soon as Holly moved in, she began an intense sexual relationship with Hef. She was the only one who had sex with him regularly and replaced his main girlfriend, Tina, in all of the bedroom duties. My guess is that she knew what she had to do to stand out and she did it. I remember a couple of weeks after I started going out with Hef, some of them said they didn't mind the fact that Holly was becoming intimate with Hef and spending so much time with him because it freed them all up. She didn't seem to have any friends and I always made a point of being nice to her and sitting beside her since no one else did until a girl named Bridget came along. And then she goes, I didn't think Holly would ever become the main girlfriend. It seemed to me that she didn't have that certain je ne sais quoi that previous main girlfriends had. But she says she moved in like a hawk. She said, I truly believe Hef was not ready for anyone to move in so quickly, but I think he knew that there were no other options and Holly was the only one asking for the job. From then on, Holly devoted herself to becoming Hef's first lady. This effort, which appeared premeditated to me, involved her physical transformation, mannerisms, adapting his interests and habits, and carefully examining what traits and characteristics he liked in other women and trying to adopt those as her own. 
So the big thing about Holly in her book is that her claim is that she was in it because she truly loved Hef and she saw Hef as the romantic endgame and she wanted to share a normal relationship with this man. Isabella claims that Holly had at one point said, we got more gifts and more money when there was fewer of us. I wanted to go back to being fewer of us. Isabella says later after she left the mansion, she was at a party and met some people who had known Holly in her pre-mansion days and said that Holly had spent a significant amount of time strategizing for how to become one of Hef's girls. She also says that she really does believe that Holly was the only girl who ever didn't have a boyfriend or flings outside of the house. Holly was a real goody two-shoes. She calls Holly and Bridget the nerds and them the cool girls. They liked playing Monopoly. Or she claims that Holly had studied all of Hef's likes and learned to like old movies and that she was super dedicated and she was a real snitch. She would tell on anybody. Which is really interesting because in Holly's book, she's like, we just happened to have all of these things in common. I was an old soul and he was literally old and that's why we got along. And it's like, I don't know, according to this book, those were all characteristics that she fully put on to be a more desirable top gal. It really was the thing that kept her endeared to Hef. It wasn't that he liked her. He didn't really like anything about her, it seems. But he did like how hard she was willing to work to be his top girl. That's all he ever wanted was the girls to feign appreciation and care. And she said that Holly would get really jealous of his exes. Barbie Benton would come over. Him and Barbie Benton had dated for 10 years. Gorgeous girl. She was really jealous of his current wife, who he was still married to, Kimberly Hefner, who he had two children with, Marston and Cooper. They lived across the street. She was jealous of all these women. But apparently she went and got her nose done and brought in Barbie Benton's nose. So she says that she felt one of the reasons Holly hated Kimberly, Hef's still at the time wife, was because she felt that they were bonded by the children. And so that apparently is what spurred Holly's obsession with trying to see if she and Hef could have a baby. Says that she and Holly never had any hyper-specific beef and she tried to stay out of the drama. But the things she says about Holly, she says, I think Holly will make a terrific trophy wife to someone, but I cannot imagine her as a mother. She says that Holly like does not have one maternal bone in her body. She's like, look at the dogs. She can't take care of the dogs with a team of people helping her take care of the dogs. It was really vicious. Nobody was allowed to hang out with Hef. She would turn them all against her. They said that she would go out of her way to make sure that nobody could be with him in the bedroom and then point out to Hef that nobody else was in the bedroom with him. She's the reason that Isabella couldn't get the black Escalade because Holly said she couldn't get a car that was similar to her. So she had to get a white Land Rover. So sad. So sad. They eventually had a meeting, a meeting of the girlfriends. And they were like, Holly, you clearly have issues with us. What the fuck is going on? And they agreed to stay out of Hef's way a little bit so that Holly would be more comfortable. But then Hef was really upset that all of the girlfriends were staying out of his way. He's like, why do I have seven girlfriends and only one of them talks to me? I do think that Hef would blame things on each other. I do think that Holly accurately brought up that Hef would create infighting on purpose in the girls so that they were all spying on each other and couldn't gang up. Isabella never makes that jump that he was clearly doing it on purpose, but she does give this example of one of the girls, Susan, got to test to be a Playboy centerfold and none of the other ones were allowed to do that. They were told that no girlfriends could be centerfolds and then they found out that Susan had tested for it. Then when Susan didn't get it, Hef said to Susan, it's because all the other girls were too jealous so we couldn't give it to you. But they're like, no, the reality was Susan was 30. You can't be a Playboy centerfold at 30. A 30-year-old centerfold. What's next? Hef in the centerfold? Cows that are centerfolds? (laughs) And she also does call out at one point that it feels a little childish the way Hef dealt with the drama. It's funny hearing about his emotional immaturity. She goes, when we broke any of the rules, Hef would act very disappointed and make us feel bad. It seemed like he was loving making us feel guilty. But the thing was, if anyone started crying, he would back off and be sweeter than ever. I remember a fight I had with him once about something minor. Hef confronted me and we got into an argument. Being an emotional person, I started crying. He walked out of my room but came back 20 minutes later. 
to give me a hug and to tell me he loves me very much and he wants us to all be happy. Only a few people get to see the other side of Hef, the sides that living at the Playboy Mansion for two years slowly revealed to me. Insecure and egotistical, controlling but naive. And I think this is interesting because something is he would know people were cheating and not confront them until it got out of hand. I do think she believes in the naivete more than it existed. Because she also points out later that he was this childlike figure who created this playground for himself where he got to indulge in his fantasies and whatever didn't fit into those fantasies, he just didn't acknowledge. And I think it was not necessarily that he was naive. It's that he chose to only see exactly what he wanted to see. When they would go out on these clubbing nights or when they would have a bunch of parties to go to like for the golden globes after parties they would go to like six parties stay at each party for like 15 minutes long enough to do the red carpet and be seen and talk to a couple of celebrities and then they would get the fuck out of there and then on the way home he'd be like wasn't that an amazing night and she's like what the fuck is he talking about that was not amazing we just stood and watched people having fun and then probably an hour after we left I bet you the party got really fun and we missed all of it so something that she says that I do think is true and there's hints of it in the Holly book is that first and foremost Hef loves the success of the magazine the thing he loves most is that magazine and I do believe its success is what gets him going more than the girls and having to have sex with the girls is just part of the illusion that promotes the magazine and then he actually sees himself as an extent of that magazine and he tries to live his life through the ideals of the magazine but they aren't actually necessarily what he wants they talk about sex with Hef and it's obviously so structured I remember in Holly's book she said once the girls next door took off and the magazine was back on track and the money was rolling in again they stopped having sex altogether Isabella realizes that she goes he didn't love us as people we were mostly promotional tools and I do think these were shock girls who had the worst deal in the world even when you count for the cars and the makeup and stuff your freedom costs a lot and also 24 hours around the clock working, that should be making you a lot more money than $50,000 a year. But it's also hard to justify when working pretty much just means lying by the pool. But at the end of the day, it's hours that you can't do anything else. Yes. Like, what is your human life worth? I would say my human life, like a year of my life is worth more than $50,000, especially if you want to BJ every once in a while. But I do think she realizes that, that he doesn't see them as people. He sees them as promotional tools. And part of the promotion is that they're these loyal, obsessed girlfriends. Like when a company blocks Instagram on the computers. In theory, you should be working the whole time. But just to help you be working the whole time, they will take away the thing that they know you're doing. That's not work. I mean, Playboy is about the male fantasy. And I think that he lives his life to what his fantasy was when he was just a weird virgin. Well, I think the thing about a fantasy is once you're living it, it's not the fantasy anymore. And that the whole Playboy mansion thing is that on the outside, how amazing would it be to just be making money to sit by a pool all day and get to press the number zero and you have a butler with any food in the world. But nothing's actually that fun when you live it. Let's get into the sex. So something that she adds that Holly did not bring up is she said that, first of all, Holly was the start-off girl. She would start him off with her mouth. She would get him hard. And we knew that from Kendra's book. From the early party posse days, before it was more scheduled they would be coming out from the club and sometimes things would get hot and horny in the limo girls they had picked up in the club would start making out and stuff holly would give him head and bridget would suck on his nipples but every time he finished he always masturbated to finish holly would always be next to him licking his nipples those old man nipples the thing that really grossed me out no offense no judgment sex positive is we know that the sex routine is they go up to the bedroom on the bed holly gets half hard and then girls will just come and kind of ride him for a couple minutes and then holly takes it to the end and then half jerks off but what was included in this book is that occasionally after a couple girls hopped on and hopped off before half finished he was a little limp again and then holly would re-harden him (laughs) with her mouth like there's no 
condoms. In every account of Life of the Playboy Mansion, girls had herpes. There was herpes in this vicinity. There was probably 10 new unchecked vaginas per week in addition to the regular girls. Everyone claims that they have never had an STD. It's impossible. Who has the STDs? I don't think that they're getting checked at all. STDs remain dormant in some people. It just doesn't manifest in the same way in everybody. And so if you don't get tested, you can like live in bliss. <laughs> Spread herpes wherever you go. Do you have anything else to say about Holly? Do you have any final things? You the interesting thing is that Holly is painted as an absolute judgmental shrew in this book. There is not one redeeming quality. I think even Kendra painted Holly as an angel compared to this book. She is unfun, uninteresting, jealous, and mean. She didn't just want to be the top girlfriend. She wanted to be the only girlfriend and I guess Bridget was like I'm fine being here till the end and she says that Tammy the woman who was the main girlfriend before Holly was actually quite like a mother hen and explained everything to the girls and lead them through whereas Holly's MO was to like trick people into fucking up she said that she came up with the nicknames of Muffin and Puffin and that she would make them wear matching outfits all the time. She said that people were really freaked out by the way Holly was becoming half. She would come to dinner in silk pajamas and they'd be like, what the fuck? All right. So now I want to move on to actually one of the more shocking parts of this book. She hated Bridget. I thought Bridget was just like a bumbling sidekick. I had no idea that she was also a manipulative person. She really came off nice in the show. And then Isabel actually quoted things from the show where I was like, maybe she wasn't nice. Maybe she she was like a manipulative, sabotaging biatch. Yeah. In the show, I always thought Bridget was just a sweetheart. She was perfect for the Playboy image in the way they wanted to seem family friendly because she did seem family friendly. I remember specifically being like, she reminds me of my grandma. Yes. And then in Holly's book, Bridget's just her best friend. Obviously, she comes across well in that. In Kendra's book, Bridget is almost irrelevant. Yes. And in this book, you're like, oh, this is not a flattering portrait of Bridget. So first and foremost, Isabella thinks Bridget was lying about her age because she was supposed to be at the top of her 20s. And I guess by the show, she was in her early 30s. But she got under eye fraxel surgery, like, like laser resurfacing because she had really bad wrinkles. And she's like, I don't know anybody in their late 20s who has bad eye wrinkles. And I have to say, as somebody in my late 20s, I also don't. She did grow up on a farm, I suppose. There was a lot of sun. A big reveal is that Bridget was married the whole time. She had a husband back in her hometown. She moved out to LA and he was like, I will support you financially for one year while you try to make it in the entertainment industry. She spent that one year getting in at the Playboy Mansion and then she lived in the mansion and was having sex with half. They didn't get divorced. I looked it up until 2008. She left Girls Next Door. Her final season was 2009. So I guess she was like, I've got a lot of contracts to end right now. She makes out Bridget to be like a real in it to win it girl. She was fucking a manager that apparently a lot of people fuck. To try and get in. That's first where they met her. And then even there, she was trying to upgrade to Hef. That guy ditched her, but she came back. She really makes it out to be like, Bridget just kept sneaking her way in. She was like, I don't think Hef was ever that into her, but Holly really took her in. And then Hef obviously does a lot to appease Holly. So getting Holly a friend in the house was kind of a priority. So because Holly had selected Bridget, Bridget was in. She talks about how she just never found Bridget attractive, never found Bridget interesting. The end of her time at the Playboy Mansion was an enormous blowout with Bridget. Okay, I want to say really quick, Isabella loves to point out how unreasonable the other girls can be and how hard she stayed out of the drama. And she does give us little one-liners of her saying things that I'm like, this was shit stirring. No one is innocent. I do think no matter who you are going into the Playboy Mansion, you become something else, okay? And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying to go in here and have problems with every fucking girl and say that you're not a shit stirrer, I don't believe you. But that's also why I do think Holly sucked because I do think everyone hated Holly too. 
I think Isabella's problem was that she was not honest with herself about what she wanted. And because of that, she was constantly frustrated. She got into like a physical altercation with Roxy. (laughs) But she was constantly getting into these fights with these other girls on their way to their goals. And I think because she had no clear path, she couldn't be single-minded in that way too. And that actually was her downfall. It's the exact same thing we talked about with Holly, where it's when you don't understand what you want and what you're going for, it's very easy to judge everyone else's path. So I disagree. I think Holly got exactly what she wanted. Holly wanted to be the number one girl and she wanted to be like the top bitch. And then... Well, Holly wanted to marry him. Yeah, but then I think when she got famous in her own right, she actually was like, I can like level up again. But what I'm saying is throughout her book, her whole thing is that she's passing judgment on all the girls around her. But I don't think it's for the same reason that Isabella is. I think that she's passing judgment because part of what her goal is, is to fuck over the other girls. I think she's trying to destroy them. Isabella didn't care who else was there. She was just getting into fights because she like hung out too long without a focused. I do think Holly's insecurity came from the fact that she had decided that she was going to go in and become number one because she thought it would lead to something. But that something was very unclear to her. Like I get that she had a goal, but the goal wasn't like thought out. The goal wasn't either money or a husband. I want to like soak up as much of the fame and attention that this brings. With Isabella, I agree that she didn't have a focus. And I think that she was kind of losing it just being trapped in this Groundhog's Day situation. But she does point out all of the other girls and their scheming and conniving and their rule breaking and this and that. And then she's doing pretty much the same things, but it's just not bad when she does it. I don't think she judged the other girls for cheating, though. I don't think she judged them. I'm just saying she does separate herself from them. Yeah, she dates a billionaire at one point while with half. I think the problem specifically with Holly and a lot of these women is that they can't define what is bringing them the feeling of fullness that they get from this situation because there is something very validating about this man who is known for loving the most beautiful women in the world loves me more. I'm special amongst them and then also the attention you get from other people. But that's hard to quantify. And so it's not just the money and it's not have all of the things together. In the same way that she talks about living at the mansion, it has this quality that feels special because they can't name it. They have to get more of it, but they don't know where it's coming from. And I think that's what happened to Holly. I think she's like, I know I like this feeling that I get of being a girlfriend. And then she's like, I like it even more when I'm the number one girlfriend. And she's like, I bet I'd like it even more if there was less other girlfriends. And I feel like she like didn't understand what it is that she was actually after. And then when she became famous enough, she realized she could get that feeling from somewhere else, which is just fame itself. I think that that's really true. But I don't think she ever really understood what it was that she liked about the situation. I think there's something very special about it, especially because there's so many events where there's so many other people coming around and everyone wants to be there when they don't fully understand the situation. She even talks about Pam Anderson coming to sit at the table with them one time and just fawning over Hef. And she's like, I can see how this girl gets everything she wants because she really can lay out a compliment. And then she just like leaves very quickly. And she's like, okay, so clearly she didn't want to date Hef. Yeah, no, she was just at the table flirting with Hef. And it feels cool in that moment to be the girl who's dating Hef when Pam Anderson Anderson comes over and is laying it on thick with your man. So Bridget is married. Bridget is possibly very old. And then very much Holly's gunman. Holly is queuing it up and being like, Bridget, take that one out. And so I want to talk about this fight that they get into on the last night. So Isabella has already broken up with Hev. She's going to be moving out. They go out clubbing. And in the limo, Isabella sits next to Hef, which I guess is Bridget's Spot. So at the club, Bridget is just crying. And someone comes up to Isabella and is like, Bridget's crying because you sat next to Hef. And she's like, what the fuck? So she goes over and talks to Bridget and is like, are you literally crying right now because I sat next to Hef? And she in this book is justifying it by being like, I was literally leaving. Everyone knew I was leaving. What the fuck is wrong with her? 
Bridget was like, you did that on purpose. And Isabel's like, you need to get back on your meds, you fucking psycho. And so then Bridget tattles to Hef. Hef comes over and it's like, what the motherfuck is wrong with you? Why would you say that? He grabs her by the arm and shakes her, she says. They end up refusing to get back in the limo with them that night. And they stay out at the club and take a cab back to the mansion. And she's like, luckily there was security there to pay for the cab. And she says that she thinks Bridget did it on purpose to sour her relationship with the mansion so that she wouldn't be able to come back willy-nilly. She does say she's like, the minute I got yelled at, I look over and there she is, happy as a clam, dancing. And I believe it. That is some manipulative shite. These girls were in it to win it. It's scary. I do think because Isabella had this law school backup, she had a part of her that was like, I don't need this. I'm just getting what I can to leave. She had a very, I don't care. I don't care. But clearly she cared enough to stay for two years. Mm -hmm. But she didn't ever care enough to like bring in the effort. She was just riding it out because she didn't know what she wanted. There was no exit ramp. I mean, she did say she always assumed he'd pay off her student loans and he never did. And so I wonder if he ever hinted that he might. She says that he had paid off previous girls' student loans. But it turns out that was just community college classes. Like $5,000. Anyway, so I know you wanted to talk about Kendra real quick and then we'll wrap it up. So Kendra comes in during her last couple months at the mansion every single girl has this story of I don't know how it happened I just sort of like tripped over myself landed in front of Hugh Hefner and he said come be my girlfriend and that's just not it for anyone so she writes about Kendra and she's like Kendra was a painted girl at Hef's birthday party which we knew and in Kendra's telling of it Hef was obsessed with her from the first time he saw her photo before she even got to the painted lady party he had asked her to move into the mansion from that day he started inviting her to parties and inviting her to live in the mansion according to this book Kendra very carefully positioned herself in front of Hef to be noticed to be seen and to be remembered and there was a lot of vying that went into it she angled to get herself invited to live in the mansion and there was effort towards it it seems like Hef loves fresh meat he loves a new girl he loves making a new girl feel comfortable but this whole like trip over yourself and end up a girlfriend is not the story for literally anybody honestly I would probably rank Kendra Holly Isabella just in terms of writing and pace (laughs) but I do think this book was a really interesting trifecta to help us round out the story for everyone And the other thing that I think is fascinating is that Isabella was definitely a really big part of Holly's mansion experience. But because then Holly had the show, Isabella became irrelevant. She's not mentioned in Holly's book. Well, and I do think this book came out before Holly's book and she tears Holly apart. So I'm sure the best revenge is not mentioning her at all because the last thing she wants to do is remind people that this girl has her side too. But I do remember there's certain moments that they completely cross-reference perfectly. Like when Isabella gets roped into a scheme someone else came up with where they sell their friend passes to parties for thousands of dollars to people who want to go. Another one is Isabella also recalls when Holly tried to look like Marilyn Monroe and it backfired. That story is pretty identical on both ends. I also want to just quickly disclaim that it really bothers me that both Isabella and Holly went pretty hard on the girls who were working as escorts and sort of using their Playboy connections to rack up their escort fees. Both her and Holly passed like very extreme judgment on these girls working as escorts. And I just feel like it's not that different. It's not that different. And also like who cares? But also truly, it's not that different. There was one girl who was a girlfriend very briefly who was formerly like a kink model or something. Yeah. And she shows up to a Halloween party dressed as a horse with a gag in her mouth. They literally call her a freak. She's the only girl that all of the girlfriends have ever banded together to get kicked out of the girlfriends group. Because she was just so overtly sexual. And I think it's so interesting that they've drawn where what they're doing is not overtly sexual. And then as soon as someone is truly comfortable in their sexuality, that's too much. 
Meanwhile, she talks a lot about being comfortable in her sexuality. And it's like, it sounds like you're comfortable in being seen as hot by men. Yeah, you're comfortable being sexy. You're not comfortable in your sexuality. Or with other people's sexualities. Yes. What were your final thoughts on this book? I felt that a lot of the info I knew, just because this is my third Playboy book, (laughs) I liked that she kept it short and sweet and to the point. And I do think it was an interesting third perspective on Holly and Bridget. I was very grateful for her Bridget insights. I really am buying for a Bridget book. I am forever interested in this Playboy life. I wonder if it was just because Girls Next Door hit us at just the right time. I did not dislike her and I am curious about her career after this moment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like she went on to do much. I will say I feel like we cheated with this one because it was technically a memoir but we read it as a biography of Holly and Bridget. I know. We mostly used it to get into them but whatever. It still counts. You guys, as always, we've got bonus content on the Patreon. We last week had Fluently Forged and McNamara who's an incredible blind items specialist we went on for like almost two hours about celebrity gossip we've got another incredible Patreon episode coming up this week check out the wormhole if you want to connect with the other wormies it's on Facebook it's called the wormhole and of course Instagram TikTok everything we love you so much like review subscribe we we're so close to a thousand you're almost free we love you guys I love you guys a lot okay see you next week